Thanks everyone for joining us today for Critical Care Grand Rounds. Um, and today uh, I'm really excited about um, the conversation and the discussion and, and the lecture for today. Um, so today we're joined by Dr. Tamar Schiff and Dr. Stephen Wall. They're from um, NYU. Um, and if you haven't read it, I posted in the chat um, a link to the paper that sort of got me interested in their work. So this paper was published in uh, in critical care um, pretty recently and is talking about ECMO um, uh, and integration with organ preservation in the U.S. and kind of some of the ethical and logistical implications that go into this. Um, and super happy so to have here some discussion about some of the ethical implications, but also the logistical and practical implications. Um, and so thank you to Dr. Schiff and Dr. Wall for joining us today to kind of share this idea and this concept uh, with us and for um, allowing us to have this discussion with you. So thank you both for being here. Thank you again for the invitation. I think we're both very excited to be here, both to share our work and then to have hopefully a, a nice discussion at the end. Uh, so as mentioned, I'm Tamar Schiff. I'm trained as an internal medicine physician, but I'm doing a research postdoc in medical ethics. And most of my work is in transplant ethics. And then you'll hear from Dr. Steve Wall, who's a tenured associate professor in emergency medicine, population health, and who serves as my mentor in a lot of the work in this domain. Um, so these are just very briefly our disclosures. I'll let everyone take those in. And then the objectives we shared ahead of, of today's talk. I just do want to signpost so kind of people know where we're going to go in the next 45 to 50 minutes. I'll just very briefly touch on um, the purpose and data behind the use of ECMO for resuscitation or ECMO-assisted uh, CPR, eCPR, and then using the same circuit in a modified way for organ preservation ahead of recovery for transplantation. So that's termed normothermic regional perfusion, NRP. I'll then uh, review the reports of the combined eCPR and NRP programs in countries outside the U.S. and really spend most of the time thinking about the ethical and logistical considerations in implementing those type programs here in our um, interesting and fractured healthcare system. Um, and then I'll really end on just trying to emphasize uh, what we think is the most important thing, which is a focus on proactive ethics in planning and designing these types of programs. And I'll kick it over to Steve to underscore the importance of proactive ethics as he reviews lessons from his very hands-on experience in implementing a kidney UDCD program here in New York. Okay, so again, um, this part I really will try to be brief, more than happy to talk about it more in the discussion, just so that we get to the meat of this, which will hopefully be the ethics and the other considerations. So very briefly, ECMO, as um, as you mentioned, I'm sure you guys have a pretty active program in this, can be used for CPR. Most um, commonly, this is people who have failed conventional CPR and so are termed refractory and then go on to be cannulated um, with ECMO used uh, for further resuscitation purposes. The data on this um, is promising, but most of the published reports are single-centered and observational, and there's um, pretty varying and inconsistent eligibility criteria across these studies, so it's hard to generalize. But it does seem that very specific patient selection, uh, rapid initiation of ECMO for resuscitation and then regionalization of programs where there's very tight coordination between EMS services and the hospitals to which patients are going to be taken. These are the important factors in making um, eCPR more uh, effective for resuscitating individuals. Um, that's weighed against the, of course, many potential complications, including bleeding, hemolysis, thrombosis, a host of other complications. And so I raise that, you know, very superficially here just to say that um, for all its promise, we do need to consider uh, if some people would have done just as well with standard CPR and um, may actually suffer more complications from uh, 
ECMO being employed. And that's going to be kind of a continuous theme when I get to the to the ethical considerations of these combined programs. So in the same vein, uh, the same circuit, again, can be used uh, not for resuscitation, but after death, simply to preserve organ viability ahead of organ recovery for transplantation purposes. And this, again, is termed normothermic regional perfusion. This uh, little schematic is just showing that, again, it is using a modified version of the same ECMO circuit, but if you are just trying to recover abdominal organs, um, you would occlude any blood flow above the level of the diaphragm. And if you want to include thoracic organs, then occlude at the level of the carotid. So again, in this scenario, the, the purpose of ECMO is not resuscitation. It is simply to perfuse organs after death to increase their viability upon transplantation. So here I just want to touch on kind of the alphabet soup that you can't avoid when you get into this. Um, so I'll start with, because the focus of this is really going to be integrating um, the prospects of organ donation, it's really important to keep in mind that there's this consensus tenet of the dead donor rule, which is that an individual cannot be made dead for the purposes of recovering their organs. So uh, death has to be declared uh, before any life-sustaining organs are removed. And then again, just uh, touching on all the acronyms. So we know that most organs that we recover currently are after an individual is declared dead by neurological criteria. So that's either uh, donation after neurological death or brain death, DND, DVD. And then uh, what we're hoping to explore is the potential of the increased donor pool after circulatory respiratory uh, criteria of death, so DCD, and that can either happen in happen in an uncontrolled setting, which someone has uh, a unexpected cardiac arrest, or in a controlled setting, which like sustaining treatment is withdrawn again in a very controlled environment, and then uh, death is declared by circulatory criteria, and the person goes on to donate their organs. Uh, there are these accepted uh, master class classifications of these different categories. So again, uh, first and second being uncontrolled if someone is either found dead or witnessed cardiac arrest. Um, in both cases, these are sudden and unexpected events. And uh, category three being a controlled environment in which uh, life-sustaining treatment is withdrawn. And then uh, four, which I think we talk about because it happens less frequently, is if someone does um, arrest have a, have a cardiac arrest after a neurological determination of death. And we'll focus on that one the least. This is really just to drive home the point. So again, in using NRP for uh, donation after circulatory respiratory criteria of death. Um, so in a very broad strokes, if someone undergoes, if someone uh, suffers cardiac arrest, undergoes CPR, moves on to eCPR, so they're already cannulated and um, hooked up to the ECMO, uh, in these scenarios, then, um, if there is not, and they don't meet criteria for death by neurological criteria, but there is not an anticipation that they will recover to the point of meaningful neurological activity, um, and uh, there is the decision to um, withdraw life support for the purposes of organ donation. In this scenario, again, the ECMO is, I'm going to use in exacting terms here, but turned off. The person is declared dead by uh, by cardiac criteria after a hands-off period in which we make sure there's no autoresuscitation of the heart. Um, and then after occlusion of blood flow, either at the level, again, of the diaphragm or the carotids, 
the circuit is turned back on, but now it's not for resuscitation purposes. It's simply to perfuse the organs that we're trying to recover. So that's controlled DCD. And then in uncontrolled DCD, again, this is someone who's either witnessed cardiac arrest or found dead. So they either have or have not undergone CPR. But in this scenario, they're really cannulated simply for the purpose of NRP. They've never had a trial of eCPR and they go on to donate um, through the UDCD pathway. So I want to now review the reports um, that uh, have been published of combined eCPR UDCD using NRP um, protocols. And the real, you know, undergirding rationale of all of these is that we know that using ECMO for CPR does offer select patients a better chance of uh, resuscitation with good neurological criteria. Again, we still have a ways to go in determining which patients those would be. And we also know that organs recovered after the use of NRP um, do show very promising results in terms of their being um, more viable and in turn having better outcomes for the transplant recipients. So taking these two prospects together, the idea is that combining these programs really allows for us um, to maximize lives saved. So the first uh, study was in Porto, Portugal. This was a prospective observational study of uh, in and out of hospital cardiac arrests um, in about a year and a half long period. Uh, this is their protocol. I'll just review it very briefly. So after someone is refractory to standard cardiac, to standard CPR, excuse me, um, they're considered for eCPR based on clinical criteria. If they meet these criteria, then they go on to receive CPR. Um, this again is a very, this is their, um, EMS and hospital system allow, uh, regionalization and, and very close coordination that allows quick transport to hospitals. If they don't meet eCPR criteria, then uh, they are considered for UDCD. And if if they go on to that pathway, then NRP is employed. So in this study, um, you can see what they found is that uh, of the individuals who received eCPR, 15 obtained ROSP, eight of those were weaned from ECMO, and one, um, I'm sorry, and six were then discharged with good neurological criteria. Um, of those who uh, were not able to be weaned from ECMO, uh, one was uh, declared dead by neurological criteria and two kidneys were recovered and transplanted. But then in the UDCD arm, uh, 33 of the 40 individuals were successfully cannulated for NRP. And among those, they recovered one liver and 62 kidneys, 44 of which were successfully transplanted. So you could see a very um, increased donor pool from incorporating these two uh, protocols. A second study that was reported was in Florence. Again, a prospective observational study. This one was of just out of hospital cardiac arrest, um, again, for about a year and a half study period. Uh, so they reported that of their 134 eligible patients, uh, eligible by being under 65, of those that... Uh, obtained ROS by standard CPR, 15 of those died and uh, seven became donors after neurological, after death by neurological criteria. Of the 86 that did not achieve ROSC, um, 26 underwent eCPR and eight of those went on to be donors. And then 25 um, went on to be UDCD donors without undergoing eCPR. So their impressive conclusions here were that of 
the whole study population, there were 40 donors, 25 of which, so the majority came from the UDCD pathway. So again, incorporating these two protocols allows for a really impressive broadening of the donor pool. And this will be the final study I review. So this one was in Lisbon and uh, actually represented kind of a, a expansion of the Porto original study. This one was retrospective uh, with data for a two-year study period. Um, similarly, again, uh, these were among patients admitted to their ICU. They were either considered for eCPR, and if not, then considered for uh, DCD donation. So uh, among the people who received eCPR, five of them died. One was discharged with good neurological criteria. And then among the UDCD patients, um, I'll mention here, they call it donors refused, but this isn't I believe only one was the family's refusal. The rest were refused to be accepted as donors due to clinical criteria. But 13 went on to be effective donors. So they transplanted 26 kidneys. And the important part here is that that really represents about a 20% increase in the kidney transplant activity at their center during the study period. So a great expansion of their ability to recover and transplant kidneys by employing UDCD. I hope I haven't saturated anyone yet. This is now going to get into um, the meat of our paper where we were really looking at considering implementing such a program here in the U.S., being very mindful of the differences between the U.S. healthcare systems and the countries that are represented in these other studies, um, Portugal and Italy. This is our um, kind of cutely termed concept map. We've uh, shown this to a few when we describe this as a as a simplified version, they kind of laugh in our face uh, because this is hardly simplified, but it is from the from the true protocol. So I'll just walk through this very briefly. So again, the the protocol that we're looking at is one in which someone un, uh, suffers cardiac arrest if uh, this is termination of resuscitation. If they go on to receive eCPR, obviously they could always rearrest. Uh, once they get to the point of achieving ROSC, they can go on to standard post arrest care. If they do not achieve ROSC, uh, they're considered for eCPR, which of course can be uh, declined due to clinical criteria. If not, though, they go on to receive eCPR from which they can, again, recover, be weaned from ECMO and go on to post-arrest care. They can go on to be transitioned to destination therapy, like an LVAD or a, a heart transplant. They can um, go on to be declared dead by neurological criteria while on ECMO. Or uh, there will be those who uh, do not meet criteria for neurological death, uh, but are not able to be weaned from ECMO. And those will either be those who with very poor neurological function, in which sometimes uh, the family or per the person's wishes may go on to be uh, to have life support withdrawn and go on to be controlled DCD donors. Or, and I will um, put a pin in this one a little bit and get back to it in a couple of minutes, there are the very rare cases of individuals who are successfully resuscitated with the use of ECMO, do have good neurological functions, you know, uh, presumably could be capacitated and participating in their own care decisions, but are unable to be weaned from ECMO and are not eligible for a different destination therapy. So they're really um, on this, what has been termed in literature, bridge to nowhere. And I'll get back to that in a second. The second arm, and and these final bubbles just represent the kind of the destinations in terms of uh, donation decisions. This lower arm is for individuals who do not end up receiving eCPR and are considered for cannulation for the use of ECMO for um, regional perfusion to become UDCD donors. And they can, of course, go on not to donate 
or to uh, proceed with the UDCD pathway. So that is the very pared down protocol that we're looking at. And the real thrust of our project that, that was published in this paper was looking at the important ethical considerations that rise at kind of central nodes, these color-coded ones along the way. Um, and I'll get back to this concept in a second, but we really, the the real impetus was that you need to sort out the ethical and then of course, logistical, legal, et cetera, considerations before implementation of protocol, because um, sorting these out and doing this equitably and ethically is just as important as, uh, you know, sorting out the clinical criteria that are important. So with that in mind, I'm just going to quickly walk through the what we thought were the most key ethical, ethical, legal considerations at each one of these kind of central points along the protocol. The first is when considering the initiation of eCPR. Um, because our healthcare system functions so desperately uh, in different geographies, um, there is obviously a different resource availability depending on institutions. Um, Thinking about widely disseminating eCPR programs here in our country really uh, requires consideration of how to best ensure equitable access to this technology. Um, a second consideration is that uh, as this becomes a more prevalent practice, the public will similarly need to be educated about this being a consideration in end-of-life decisions. And so when normally we think about, you know, having a code status decision, it is around um conventional CPR, uh, but the considerations that eCPR brings along, including, again, the complications that can potentially result from ECMO, et cetera, uh, will be ones that need to be included in a standard code status discussion. The next place we looked, again, is this consideration of what can happen once a patient has undergone ECMO for resuscitation purposes. The first is that there are, again, there is not necessarily uniform practice or consensus guidelines around uh, which point, based on a patient's uh, clinical outcome after ECMO, we can consider withdrawing ECMO. If it's, um, again, this is an inexact term, we obviously are trying to get away from the use of the word futile, but if it's deemed futile or, or medically inappropriate, at what point or with what criteria can you consider withdrawing it? Um, again, there is just more research and public discussion to be done around the risk of complications of ECMO. And then finally, this very emotionally and ethically fraught um, scenario that I mentioned of the bridge to nowhere uh, and, and the clinical teams, but also individuals and their family members having to consider this a, a possible outcome in making the decision of whether to initiate ECMO or not. Um, here, once we consider controlled donation after cardiac death, um, I'll first talk about the second bullet point. We again don't have a strict consensus guidelines around how long we wait for autoresuscitation. So again, in these scenarios, the, the individual is on ECMO, um, but the decision has been made to withdraw life-sustaining uh, treatment for the purposes of organ donation. So the ECMO is turned off. They are then declared dead after this period for which we monitor for autoresuscitation, which is termed the hands-off period. Uh, but there have been reports of, of protocols using anywhere from two to 20 minutes for this hands-off period. Um, the majority use a five-minute window, but there are, again, no consensus guidelines on this. And the second, and I think much bigger ethical issue relevant to CDCD is this concept of permanence or irreversibility in uh, declaration of death. So I'll just spend a couple of minutes on that quickly. 
So this is the language from the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And this is um, model legal language that's written by the Uniform Law Commission. And in turn, every state has, that's a little premature, sorry. Every state has um, enacted a, a state-specific determination of death act, but they're all based on this language and are pretty uniform across states. So the uniform determination of death defines an individual um, to be dead once uh, that individual has sustained either an irreversible cessation of their circulatory respiratory function or irreversible cessation of all functions of the brain. And then, of course, in either of these scenarios, um, that determination of death has to be done in accordance with acceptable medical standards. So where this gets tricky is that uh, this is going to get a little semantic, but these are the way these two terms, irreversibility and permanence, are used pretty consistently in literature. So irreversible means cannot be reversed, regardless of what intervention is employed. So uh, the the irreversible cessation of either circulatory um, and respiratory functions or of the entire brain, no matter what intervention we uh, we apply, will not be able to be reversed. It's irreversible. Permanence is used to mean will not be reversed. So this person has been declared dead. In theory, we could try certain resuscitation interventions, but the decision has been made not to try those. Again, usually, uh, not usually, always in accordance with the wishes of the individual or their surrogate decision maker. And so they will never return the these um, functions, whether they're circulatory, respiratory, or the brain functions will not return. It's not because they are strictly irreversible, but it's because we will not try to reverse them. And the very clear example of this and which that I think is, you know, common and we all feel rather comfortable with is a patient who has elected to be DNR um, and suffers cardiac arrest. In theory, that cardiac arrest is reversible if we were to try to resuscitate them. But they are permanently um, dead because in accordance with their wishes, we are not going to try to resuscitate them. So what happens in practice, and again, this is pretty accepted now, is that even though the language reads irreversible, we treat it as permanence rather than irreversibility. A second layer to this is that there's a lot of controversy in the use of um, NRP after the determination of death, and that some people feel that if someone is declared dead by circulatory respiratory criteria, and then you restart their circulation, you're undermining that initial declaration of death. However, there is um, a host of people, but here I'm quoting uh, scholar Burnett about basically unifying the two determinations of death. And uh, the, the real thesis here is that the whole point of circulatory death is that it leads to eventual neurologic death. And the neurologic death is really the important part here. That is when the individual ceases to exist as an individual. And so if we declare someone dead by circulatory criteria and then allow the neurological criteria to complete its course by never allowing the brain to be reperfused, we are not undermining the declaration of death, even if we restart circulation in the rest of the body, because the real point here is the neurological death is the end result. And that will complete because, again, we're either occluding at the level of carotids or at the level of the diaphragm, even though we are restarting circulation, not for the purposes of resuscitation, but just for the purposes of perfusing specific organs without undermining the declaration of death of the organism as a whole. Okay, so again, this is just to show that um, for the people who are critics of using NRP, especially for recovery of thoracic organs of the heart, especially, they, uh, again, argue that it undermines the declaration of death by circulatory criteria. And so 
those uh, that camp is really proponents of these alternatives. So you can either in, instead of doing in situ NRP um, to reperfuse the organs, you could do super rapid, rapid recovery of the heart, in which case usually the donor and the intended recipients are co-located or there's a rapid recovery and cold transport of the heart. Um, the limitations of super rapid recovery is that you can't do any functional assessment of the organ in situ before preparing it for the recipient. Uh, there is an increased warm ischemic time that comes with using this protocol and the urgency of having to get the organ out of the body and into the recipient really does lead to some iatrogenic complications. The other alternative is rapid recovery and ex situ, um, this picture down here, an ex situ machine perfusion. So to be a little um, reductive, you know, in, in, in situ NRP, we can say that we are ligating the vessels or occluding blood flow and then restarting perfusion of the heart in the body. While as an ex situ, we're doing all the same things. We're occluding the vessels or severing the vessels but we are restarting perfusion of the heart outside of the body. And, you know, of course, there are people who think that whether it's inside or outside the body makes a big difference ethically. Um, but again, with ex, ex situ um, compared to super rapid recovery, and again, in similar to NRP, you do decrease ischemic time, um, but you don't get as much of a functional assessment in the body as you could with NRP. And it is extremely expensive. I've seen quotes of about 40000 per heart to to use exitu perfusion. So NRP, again, in addition to, you know, in our view, being ethically defensible, it does reduce the time constraints for organ assessment and recovery. And so reduces those iatrogenic complications and allows for this real functional assessment of the organ before it's given to the recipient. Um, and then in turn, again, compared to super rapid recovery, it does reduce injury due to warm ischemic time. So now I'm getting back for our very final box here. Um, this is the home stretch. So just the ethical considerations in this bottom arm in which someone has not undergone eCPR, but is instead cannulated for the purposes of NRP. Here, really, it is important to think about the differences in our system compared to uh, those countries, Portugal and Italy, in which these uh, combined programs have been reported because we do not have or I'll rather I'll say we have an opt in organ donation system. And so someone really has to give their permission as opposed to, for example, in Portugal, where they have an opt out. So the baseline assumption is someone will be an organ donor unless they have registered or the family has indicated otherwise. So in our country, there is that um, kind of stop measure of wondering whether it's okay to candidate someone if we don't know whether they're an organ donor. And the assumption is that they're not because we have an opt-in system. So this really raises the um, question of whether it would be okay to candidate someone for the purposes of, of um, preserving their organs until we determine whether their decision is to become an organ donor or not. Um, this also raises questions of whether the average person who is authorizing organ donation, be it at the DMV or through a state registry, are they considering the option that they might, their body may be intervened on in this way after death, uh, be cannulated? It's rather invasive and, and would they still be comfortable being an organ donor? And finally, um, because of these equity issues, do we feel comfortable that a, a program that does not have eCPR capabilities would then use ECMO purely for organ uh, preservation purposes? And again, with the historical distress of certain communities of the medical system, could that have ripple effects in terms of 
people feeling um, that this is a further abuse. So with all these questions in mind, I will very briefly review our recommendations. And again, our biggest push here is for employing proactive ethics, trying uh, as best we can to address these considerations before implementing a protocol. Obviously, uh, implementation will raise things that weren't considered ahead of time. But the point being that we never want to be in a position in as much as we can control to play catch up to consider the ethics once they've had negative impacts and possibly undermine this whole venture. Um, so first, for this question of equitable access, we think that it's really imperative that there be national, centralized, and iteratively analyzed data of eCPR and NRP. And essentially, this would mean that any program that has eCPR and NRP capabilities um, would report their uh, their data to a centralized database. And the idea here is that then we could iteratively um, analyze that data to come up with consensus guidelines that are data and evidence-driven around things like consensus on how to decide when to withdraw, on um, how long we should wait bef uh, before we feel comfortable that auto-resuscitation will not occur. Um, the second proposal is that NRP really should only be occurring at programs that do have eCPR capabilities. This is both for the optics, again, so that communities don't feel that, you know, um, their bodies are being uh, or that there's some uh, priority being given to obtaining their organs rather than resuscitating them. But also because of uh, resource utilization, it is more ethically permissible to say that we should really only be using that the use of ECMO should always be first and foremost for life-saving purposes. And when that's not possible, then we can use it for organ preservation. That being said, in programs that are capable of doing both, it's not necessary for an individual to undergo eCPR in order to then be considered for NRP. If they don't meet the clinical criteria for eCPR, then um, we don't need to go through that pathway just to eventually say that um, they were cannulated for the purpose of resuscitation and now it's being used for organ preservation if we don't think that using ECMO for CPR would have ever benefited that individual. Here, as I went through the kind of rigmarole around permanence and irreversibility, when the language around the definition of death was being drafted, I think the considerations of ECMO were not really um, at the forefront or even considered at all. So the legal definition of death really does need re-examination around this topic. And then these are just kind of overarching takeaways that for all of these considerations and usually for any kind of proactive ethical thrust ahead of uh, implementing some novel protocol, there really is an imperative for maximal transparency at every point. So we know that often in emergency situations, um, individuals or the family members can't be updated, but anytime that is uh, possible, there should be just maximal transparency between the clinical team and the the family of an individual. It should be a process of authorization rather than a one-time conversation, and also maximal transparency in terms of uh, individual institutions protocols being um, freely discussed with or available to the public. And that leads to part two of this, which is that um, it's really important ahead of implementing these types of protocols to have broad public engagement about every step and every consideration along the way um, to consider perspectives of stakeholders that maybe the, those coming up with these protocols or, or thinking about the implementation strategies have not considered. And with that, I'll pass it over to Steve. So uh, in the final 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to do a whirlwind tour 
you know, basically all that was in the abstract, but we really have practical experience. And the reason why I reached out to uh, people like Tamar with her expertise in bioethics is that we were being reactive. And I, I, I'll give you some examples as we go along. Um, just some, I don't have any personal uh, uh, funding from any private sources. Some of our colleagues do have some uh, funding from uh, United Therapeutics, just to put that out there. Um, for some grant, and also we have some NIH funding uh, that went into some of these projects I'll be talking about. So I don't know if anyone had a good chance uh, or is a fan of um, the uh, TED Talks, but back in the day, uh, Tim Harford gave a really great talk on how is it that we solve complex problems. It's really through trial and error and evolution of that. And unfortunately, our research infrastructure is not really geared toward that. Um, but that's what you have to do to get these projects done. So uh, this was this simplified protocol, which we got chuckles uh, from our viewers. Um, I do want to point out one thing, uh, just to clarify from before. There actually are three ways uh, to consider um, organ donation after control donation after cardiac death or circulatory death, for that matter. Uh, in this country, the probably preferred method is just rapid recovery after you turn it off. But then you can also use ex vivo preservation and also... Um, returning on the NRP circuit. Um, but you see, this is a very complicated protocol, even in simplified form. Well, this is the actual protocol that's in, you know, so how the heck do you get your wrap around that? And just to highlight one quick thing. I mean, yeah, does a body, do you do echo on the street or did you bring it to the facility? Uh, do you have a regionalized program? I mean, it really gets to be a mess, right? So how do you wrap your hand around this? So, what we do is we use two theories. Um, one is called the seed scale process for social change. And this has been particularly successful in developing countries and also in Appalachia, where they were trying to um, just reform different things. Like, for instance, in Appalachia, a lot of people have dental, severe dental problems because of Mountain Dew. <laughs> you know, and, and what they do is they work with communities to try to teach them about better oral hygiene and maybe not having so many sugary beverages. And it worked out quite well. But the reason is, is it wasn't just some people telling you don't drink, you know, these beverages. It's all for alternatives. Work with community, you know, maybe in schools, get it out of the schools or, or wherever it, it might be. So the other one is what's called participatory action research, which is very counter to what traditional NIH grants and most grant funders, uh, you know, understand. Like if you put a grant in purely on this, it probably gets shot down. So the question is, how do you use these philosophies, but still have some rigor to it, okay? And, and essentially what it is, you first you define the need, and part of that need, I would say, is proactive ethics. Um, so then you design your program, and then you implement it, and you evaluate it, and then from those lessons that you learned, fix it and keep going until you get it right. I mean, this is what businesses do, uh, in fact, and why some bookstores survive and others convert to web-based uh you know, content because people aren't reading books anymore. I mean, th th this is how society tends to evolve. So I'm going to be briefly talk about two pro proposals about the uh, kidney UDC programs, UDCD programs in the, in the United States. One was funded for by uh, New York City Health and Hospitals, where I'm at. I I, uh, I have a dual appointment, one at Bellevue Hospital, which is an H and H facility, and the other is New York uh, University School of Medicine. The other one was at Pitt. So. You can see, this is my old boss, Louis Goldfrank. You can see Mayor Bloomberg at the time. Um, I always kid around. I'm the methodologist. So I'm in the background, you know, I'm hidden away. Tucked. But 
we, we basically, after engaging all these communities, we implemented a program. Um, and when we had all these, t- we had town hall meetings, we had focus groups, and these were the pretty much the, the constructs that came up. That's on the left, and on the right are the themes, okay? So there were like clinical, ethical, legal, logistical, and public concerns. And I won't go through them all, but you can see, well, so the public wanted trust. And how would you do that? Separate the teams. Make sure that whoever took care of the patient is not doing preservation. Um, you know, there's legal issues. Uh, you know, and I'll go through a, a little bit more when I show you the example of the protocol. But the idea is that this is what we had come up with through a lot of discussions with people at the top and at the bottom, so to speak. You know, you want to have some grassroots uh, feeling and, I mean, actual realization that they contributed to the protocol. All right. So this is what we had come up with first was, well, okay, we've got, um, we were going to do some after death. This is only fuel, by the way. Okay. If someone died in their home um, and met TOR criteria, they might be an organ donor if they met certain clinical criteria, whether it's their age or, or whatnot. The proposal at that time was to say, okay, let's rehook them up on a Lucas device we hook them on the ventilator, bring them to the hospital, put them on NRP, and then go on to organ donation. Um, we were only allowed to consider people who were already pre-registered for organ donation in New York. Um, so that that was the whole uh, philosophy at the time you know, for our protocol. Now, I'm bringing this slide up for a good point. What happened was my friend Brad, you know, he was actually a classmate of mine. He's one of the medical directors of, of Finn EMS. That's Fire Department of, of City of New York. He went to an EMS conference and decided, you know, hey, let me just uh, show this idea and get some feedback from our EMS community, right? Well, there was a reporter from USA Today there who completely misunderstood what we we're doing, thought we were going to, like, start all these techniques without permission or consent. And, and actually, at the time, the National Academy of Medicine thought, well, wait, maybe we can start some preservation without prior authorization and that get authorization for organ donation. But we we were just talking to communities. At the time, in fact, we already knew that they wouldn't go with it, so we were going to drop that idea. But yet, this reporter assumed that that's what we were going to do. <laughs> and we were called a meat wagon. You know, that, that was my favorite. Apparently, some people... Um, uh, it was this old Saturday Night Live sketch, apparently, about meat wagons or something. I don't know. So at any rate, this is what happens when you don't do things proactively correctly. Um, we came up with a protocol. I, you know, essentially, there was some a lot of uh, uh, stuff that we couldn't control. Like, for instance, we couldn't accept anybody who was not an organ donor. Why? Well, in, according to New York Public Health Law, EMS or anybody can only enter an apartment if you're going to save their life. If they're dead, then it's the coroner. So that so they said, okay, well, you can go in to check to see if they are registered, and if they are, you can consider them, and if not, you can't. But but only uh, 18% of the people were registered for organization at the time in New York, okay? Just to give you what, like, that, that was one of the deal breakers for us. So we, we actually were active for six months. We should have been active for longer, uh, but we had to pay for uh, detectives to uh, be on the scene, and that really cost us a lot of money to make sure there was nothing untoward for the crime stands. Um but what we did find out is that there actually were a couple of cases that we could have considered. Those are in yellow. Um, it's just that they weren't uh, registered. And then we had another case of a young person who died, not even on this list, you know, seizure in a bathtub, um, not for lungs, but could have been eligible for kidneys. Uh, but but because he was so young, they didn't bring him to us. They weren't from their hospital thinking they could resuscitate the guy. 
you know, but it didn't happen. So um, when we reviewed all our end of uh, shift notes, uh, everyone really was okay with what we were doing. Um, we also interviewed people after the fact just to double check. You can see here, this shows like even though we only had uh, nine approaches, only nine out of nine, they were, there was nothing that was unethical, nothing that where people were so offended that we shouldn't have been bothering and trying this program. And that was vetted by uh, an ethics committee looking at all of our notes. Um, this is just an example. So once we reached, this is from one of the, uh, it was a note of a participant who was approached, um, a family member. Once we reached the fifth floor and I could hear a female crying and I thought to myself, this might turn ugly due to the potential state of mind of a loved one. To my surprise, a lady who saw me and she said, oh my God, they're here for her organs, but it's okay. I understand. I mean, this just shows you that people are okay with it as long as you work with them. Um, Pittsburgh had a different problem. They, they were in hospital. It didn't work because they were going to use NRP, but they had to do a neuro check and they didn't want to do neuro checks on dead bodies. We were willing to do it. Okay. But because the whole permanence or reversibility logic came uh, to fruition around the same time that we did our work, um, they tried to use cold perfusion and it didn't work out for them. So one of the things I would suggest is that you, you think about understanding current events. So right now, for instance, in New York, they're about to start a regionalized uh, ECMO program. And it's going to be pilot tested in Manhattan. The criteria on the right, I want to, I want to uh, highlight something. Most um, eCPR programs require uh, bystander CPR. Well, Sydney understands that hardly anyone in New York gets bystander CPR. And in fact, it's regressive because in uh, communities that are most vulnerable, their rates are even lower than the, than the general population or white communities for that matter. So in essence, you really should be expanding the criteria. But when you expand criteria, you'll have less percentage of cases going to survive a good neurologic outcome. Hence, we probably have some more organ donation opportunities. So this is a, a good time to kind of consider what's going on in New York and why I enlisted uh, tomorrow and others to kind of think through it. Um, you know, and, and if we relax the criteria even more, so long as we're not hurting patients, and that's a big thing tomorrow will say, maybe it's okay, but we want to make sure that we're not, you know, causing undue problems by giving people ECMO when they wouldn't have a, a good chance of survival. That's also unethical, right? So, um, Again, like, then there's also this, and I, I was a member of this NHLBI workshop where we looked at xenotransplantation and um, DCD. And it's, it is a hot topic. There's still a lot of controversy. I call it a fundamentalist point of view where any reinstitution of circulation after death could be construed as violating the dead donor rule. And even some of our colleagues suggest that uh, the physicians could be subject to uh, criminal charges. Um, all the way to the other spectrum, which is to say, well, maybe we should allow organ donation to occur before death. I mean, that's Robert True, right? Again, we have to follow the laws of law states. So long as there are different interpretations of laws, but we have to understand there's a climate going on here. And if I started a program right now and I didn't reach out to communities and then some people read this literature that suggests that the doctors doing this should be arrested, well, you can only imagine what that would happen with communities, right? So you have to really work with them, and hopefully this might get resolved. Alternatively, which what which is what we're doing with a lung program now is I'm not I went to a, a lung program that's funded by NHLBI, excuse me, 
because we don't need NRP. Okay, well, so knowing that hopefully this can get resolved. But all it is to say is that if you are going to start a program, understand that you want to make sure that your ducks are in a row. People understand these issues. Not You don't hide them. You bring it out in the forefront and see if they're comfortable with it. Maybe New York is okay with it, but Utah's not. I'm not sure. Utah might be more in favor and New York might not. But the point is that if you don't engage the public first, you can get yourself into trouble. Um, this is an example, actually hypothetical, of maybe the communities that you want to reach out to for this particular program. Again, it's not comprehensive, but you want to do enough. And if you can't go out and meet people on the street, at least have good representatives of those people on the street. We typically will engage with um, religious leaders because with organ donation, religions tend to have strong opinions about that. But then we'll also reach out to community health workers who represent these communities. That's one way we've dealt with it. But also reach out to the clinicians because these bodies are going to be going to an OR in your hospital. And, and I'll tell you, like in our hospitals, some of those are the most folk that are mistrusting of organ donation because of bad experiences. So this is what you really want to do. Engage these people. And then also you, you want to engage the leaders in addition to the people who are doing, you know, in the pits, doing their jobs. Because you don't want it to be top-down and forced. And also, people should be able to opt out if they have their own reservations about certain things. That, that's fair, too. Um, this is also to say that if I'm going to do an evaluation, don't just focus on the clinical. Okay? So the bioethics, here, here we have, like, a um, what's called a, I guess I would call this a construct map with themes below. So constructs are acceptance of death declaration, autonomy, and trust, which are some of the tenets of bioethics, not all of them. Um, but you can look here, and these were the things that Tamara mapped out. And there's, there is overlap, but the point is, if I can get at these issues, talking with people while a program is in development and being implemented, I can do case notes, or I can also interview people qualitatively or do focus groups, however it's going to be. But get that information in addition to whether or not the organ works or doesn't work. On the other side of this, is a implementation framework, which is to say you also want to find out the processes. Is it too complicated? Uh, you know, is this really impacting other patient care services? Because that's also very important. Um, but we tend to focus more so on the clinical aspects of this, and that, that's wrong. Um, and, and this is just to hammer that home, right? So I, this is my uh, a grant that was awarded right now for a lung preservation program. And what did we do? Well, okay, this is what tomorrow's talking about. Preemptively, proactively is what I was looking for. Meet with these stakeholders and keep going until you're comfortable and you've got consensus. Get into it. Start looking at the, the screening process. Make sure that, that, that that's being evaluated and, and, and with rigor. Look at the safety outcomes. This is uh, primary graft, uh, <clears throat> sorry, primary graft uh, disease um, for 72 hours and you'll get survival. But also look at the ethical acceptability in real time. And then also you can go ahead and interview people who've been approached for these organ donations and see how they respond. And this is what's ongoing right now. We're in the planning phase. We're about to roll this out in July. So, uh, and then this, this is a table that just says, hey, you know, there's some ethical outcomes that we can look at. All right. So what do we look at? Acceptability. What does that mean? Acceptability you know, I mean, we're using what's called a, um, like a collaborative decision-making approach or, or, you know, some type of deliberation. So people are in the room, chaired by a bioethics specialist, 
and you have other people who at least have knowledge about the clinical processes with an eye towards bioethics, and they can just say, okay, is this reasonable or not? Okay. Also have an independent data and safety monitoring committee look at these things and, and for the same. And then also look at the authorization rates. Uh, look at, um, you know, how, how did, were people impacted after the fact? Right. And, and, and these are some things that you can look at. Um, data can come from anywhere. Okay. I'm having a meeting right now. When you guys are going to question me about this, hopefully there's enough time for questions. I'll, I'm going to end in a minute, but you know, I'll take notes. And then that actually gets transferred into my next protocol. But the point is, if you don't take notes and you don't organize them into what's called an action research matrix, there's no rigor to it, okay? So what I can do is I can have summaries here and encode this like a qualitative uh, person would do. And then now I've got proof that, hey, you know, we really did reach out to everybody. And if someone else says, I don't believe you, you can go through this chart. Okay, and, and and this is just another way of, of, of justifying. Now, are you going to get it right 100%? Absolutely not. I mean, look at this. Okay, so I'm in a, uh, a meeting with faith leaders, right? I know it's a little blurry, but you can see this is a simulation dummy, right? Um, so I showed this to them, and all of a sudden, they were panicked. Like, like they, they, they were just appalled. So that tells, that, that tells you how good simulation dummies are, right? Because it really does simulate what's happening. So what did we do? For the next meeting, we made a cartoon, okay? And, and this is much easier to look at. And so now they're understanding the concept without getting scared. So, um, and then this is one more thing just to hammer on the point of why proactive ethics are necessary. So we have an NRP ongoing at, at NYU right now. Vanderbilt's doing it, all these other places. So yeah, they're, you know, we got this great article that came out. And then next thing you know, I got Alex Glazer and Capron saying that all those doctors that were part of the program should be put in jail. I mean, is that really what you want? No. I mean, this is not how we should be doing this, right? We got to we got to resolve this work beforehand and, and and show that the community was really on board. In which case, the community members could write a response to Alex, and we don't have to. Um, just goes to show you how much work goes into all this. Tomorrow's uh, in this one little area here, which is being done, but we have lung uncontrolled going on. We had a kidney program in effect. And now I'm actually advising on other projects uh, like Xeno, which I never thought I would as an ER doctor, but that's how life takes you uh, in the research world. Uh, with that, I'll stop, and uh, we really would love to have any questions.